Hello, and welcome to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Let's unpack the relationships that we encounter in our daily lives and learn about what makes them tick. And now your host for Red Rock Relationships, Dr. James B. Stein. All right, that's the show, and that's my name, and we are back. It is a beautiful day in Southern Utah, which I am thrilled about. Last couple of weeks have been not so great, but we are doing well. The sun is shining, and as the old adage goes, uh, we all need somebody to lean on, and that is what we are here to talk about today. Um, We have been talking a lot when it comes to relationships about the type of people that we might tend to turn to in times of need. Uh, those folks who can provide us with essential support. And it's finally time to talk about some of those supportive and perhaps not so supportive behaviors with our guest today, Dr. Coulter Ray. Really good to have you on the show, Coulter. Good to see you, Dr. Stein. (laughs) Uh, uh, The listeners are well aware that essentially this podcast has become an opportunity for me to bring my friends on and just talk about stuff that drove us crazy in grad school. So we have another ASU alum here, uh, and he's currently an assistant professor at San Diego State University. Um, What's the weather like over there? Uh, Just about as you would expect for San Diego, it's um, it's absolutely terrible. No, I'm kidding. It's wonderful as always. 72 degrees, yeah. (laughs) And just temperate is great. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm I'm thrilled to have you here, Um, not just because, you know, it's fun to talk to people from grad school, but also because you have deep ties to a number of our gra- uh, our uh, guests in the past, including uh, Dr. Veralta, Dr. Generous, Dr. Floyd, and several others. Um, I want to start the show the way that we kind of always start the show, learn a little bit about you and your background and how you came to be studying the area that you currently study, and quite frankly, what you've been up to uh, over the last couple of years. Yeah, essentially, I study how people help each other, which in the academic circles is called social support. And that came out of some uh, experiences throughout childhood and young adulthood. Whenever I'd have friends go through difficult times, I always wondered what would be the best thing to do or to say to help out, uh, you know, my friend who's in need. And then later on in life, I started realizing whenever I went through difficult times that people sometimes said things that actually made my situation worse or the people who I thought would show up for me maybe never said anything at all. And so I started thinking about these ideas and. And uh, I had some mentors in my undergraduate uh, days who uh, went through some pretty serious um, cancer diagnoses and cancer treatments. And it was really interesting to chat with uh, to chat with them about uh, the different ways that their friends and family and the community came together to support them. But also knowing that there were people who were kind of missing the mark and not always doing or saying the best things uh, whenever they were going through those difficult cancer treatments. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, it's interesting uh, to, to hear, like, you know, the study of cancer is a really hot topic, not just in the study of human communication, but really all around the world for obvious reasons. So it's interesting to hear that, you know, this is something that's actually fairly closely tied to you. And I remember uh, from our very first week of graduate school at ASU, um, and tell me if you're still doing this, but you used to have a timer set to your phone and it would go off every day at a certain time. And it would, the question that would be on the alarm would be, who have you helped today? Are we still doing that? 
We are. I actually missed a, a few days because I uh, I got a new phone and the timer didn't transfer oh, no. over. But, oh. uh, it is my it is a nice daily ritual, uh, a reminder for that silent alarm. Uh, mm. You know, I look down at my phone and I'll see that question. And it's it's a reminder that um, really the measure of our life is oftentimes uh, how much we help other people. And and we can easily get caught up in, in our own stressors and forget that uh, it can be really beneficial to us, make us feel better to help other people. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just good for everybody all around. I agree. And, you know, I have a similar challenge to myself. I try to make at least one person laugh or smile every day uh, in the time of the quarantine. It's a li- it's been a little bit more difficult <laughs> to gauge, sure. but boom, just did it right there. Mission accomplished <laughs> right. for the day. Yeah. Check it off the box. Um, Okay, so when we talk about helping people, like you said, the, the academic term for it is social support. So can we unpack that a little bit? Just can we talk about the importance of receiving social support and perhaps what those acts uh, look like in terms of you know, specific behaviors that people tend to do? Yeah, there's quite a few different behaviors that people do to support each other. Obviously, uh, there's things that we can do that are more instrumental that help resolve problems. So maybe you find you're going to be a hundred dollars short on rent, and your, um, you know, your uncle lends you a hundred dollars. Like that would be a form of social. Lost support. all my money on GameStop. Yeah. So like, um, (laughs) you know, if if you're that person who your stonks didn't go up, uh, (laughs) then maybe you have someone who can help you out with rent. And that would be a form of of uh, of 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 some tangible support. But there's also plenty of things that we say and do for each other, like building each other, uh, building each other's uh, self-esteem up. Uh, being there with emotional support, so messages of love and caring and concern. Um, these are all different things that would technically count as social support. So there's quite a few different options that anyone has when it comes to supporting uh, those who they know who are in need. Mm. And we're going to talk about that need, that sort of like, how do you know when someone's in need? Um But I want to talk about the relational element first, because this is first and foremost, you know, a relationship podcast about communication. So um, my next question is sort of when we think about people who engage in social support, what are the types of relationships that we would expect to see these? Because you talked about, I mean, you can do things for people, you can emotionally support people. So what sort of relationships are we talking about here? Is it just partnerships, uh, family relationships, friendships, professional relationships? Like where do we see these sorts of things emerge? Yeah, that's a great question, James. It typically emerges from our closest relationships. So there's a lot of health benefits, both mentally and uh, physical health benefits, to being married or in a long-term committed romantic relationship. And those are oftentimes tied back to the fact that having a spouse or a significant other is someone who typically becomes your main form or your main source, I should say, of social support. But beyond that, though, people also tend to benefit from getting support from a close circle of friends or some colleagues. But the thing is, is that you can actually receive social support from just about anybody. Someone, um, you know, walking down the street could stop and say, hey, I really like your outfit. And that would technically be a form of esteem support. And sometimes those moments whenever uh, you are caught off guard by a compliment or something actually can be really meaningful and can really change the course of your day. It can change your mood. It can make you feel better. But in general, our social support comes from our closest relationships, our significant others, our family members, our close friends. It's so interesting that you mentioned a stranger complimenting your outfit because today on the way to campus, I I stopped uh, at at Harmon's to pick up this lovely uh, latte. 
And the individual who was working behind there kind of said, hey, I love your jacket. Uh, and I was like, thanks, it's from Target. And he was like, you should tell people it's from Nordstrom. They'd believe you. <laughs> Uh, so that was a moment for me where I, I felt I was like, oh, you know, that was a completely uh, unprovoked compliment. And yeah, I felt like you said it was to my esteem. And, you know, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about esteem, check out episode two of this most recent season when we talked with Cesaria Selwyn about the mm -hmm. self and the identity. So, OK, it can come from anywhere. Great. My follow up to that is, are there any relationships that perhaps we shouldn't expect support to come from or that perhaps these sorts of relationships are those in which we wouldn't even want support to come from in the first place? That's a wonderful question. You know, this is actually getting kind of into the research I'm currently doing. Uh, we found out early on when we started interviewing cancer patients about times whenever they received unwanted or unhelpful support. Something that caught us off guard is that we also heard from almost every cancer patient about someone who didn't say anything at all. So we started looking into that and we, st we actually found uh, several people, uh, several hundred people uh, who had decided not to support someone they knew with cancer. So this could be a friend, family, member, colleague, um, you know, kind of any type of relationship. And there were various reasons, like I don't know what to say, or I'm too shy, or that's outside of kind of what we talk about. But this really interesting phenomenon occurred, where about one in 10 people said, I didn't give support to this person I knew with cancer, because they didn't deserve my support. Wow. And I remember reading the first time that came across, I remember pushing back in my chair, and rereading it and thinking, what? And I thought it must be an anomaly, but it actually became a theme that we saw. And the reason why was if you dug, once we dug into those responses is people who had hurt each other in the past didn't necessarily get a free pass now that they had been diagnosed with cancer. So I'm thinking about one of the respondents who said, um, you know, my, my mother left me whenever I was a teenager and abandoned me for her boyfriend. Mm. And just because she has cancer doesn't mean I have to love her now. Wow. And that's really intense. But what that tells us is if you are the person diagnosed with cancer or if you know someone diagnosed with cancer, yeah, it's a life changing event, but it also doesn't necessarily rewrite the history of that relationship. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And so, OK, so from the perspective of the support giver, mm -hmm. what I'm hearing from you and correct me if I'm wrong, but this would align with my mentality uh, uh, when I always tell my students, you know, people are inherently self-serving and selfish. Do people treat their support like it's a commodity, like it's something to be earned and, and, and given only when they believe someone's deserving of it? You know, some people do. And we there's actually more research thinking about um, from the perspective of the receiver. Some people are more prone to really keep tabs on who has said what and who has done what to help them. And other people put it on what me and my friends call um, the life tab, where we kind of just say, you know, at some point in the next 50 years of our friendship, I'll get you back. Mm -hmm. And so I don't really need to keep tabs of, you know, what, what you've done for me or what you've said for me. But I think people absolutely on the, on the, on the giving side of support feel that too, especially if they start to get burnt out by someone who is just constantly asking for, for help and, and who's always in need, but never seems to take uh, any responsibility uh, or never really takes the advice they receive. And, and eventually supporters burn out. And sometimes it also, like I said, has to do with the broader history of that relationship. Mm -hmm. It might not just be uh, they're burnt out from a month of intense support. It could be that they're burnt out from a decade or decades right. of this person sort of 
you know, leeching on them and, and always depending on them um, for, for all sorts of things. Wow. Yeah. That, you know, that makes me think about equity theory, which we talked about way back at the very beginning sure. of season one, uh, this idea of like, yeah, you know, if you put a lot into a relationship and you, you turn around, you see that other person's getting a lot, but not also putting a lot in that, that can kind of turn you off. And yeah, I could kind of see, you know, it's, it's nobody's fault if they get cancer. Right. But if you've got right. somebody like my father's mother, who was a hypochondriac, a constantly asking for assistance and help. And then unfortunately they come down with something like liver cancer and now they really need the help. You have expended that, that energy already. And so perhaps it becomes more difficult to give the support when it's needed the most, which is a really upsetting thought. I didn't know we were going to get this dark. <laughs> well, I actually do characterize myself as a dark side of communication researcher and in, in, in addition to being an interpersonal health scholar. Mm. So, you know, I maybe you were surprised, but I kind of <laughs> seems like all my conversations go down this uh, kind of dark side turn. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you know, you know me, I love dark side stuff, so I'm happy to do it. Um, let's talk about the receivers of support, because we, sure. we talked a little bit about how people I wouldn't say they hoard their support, but there comes a, a time where there, there, there seem to be limits and there seem to be acts of transaction. When you're receiving support, what does it mean to receive unwanted social support? Yeah, we found this whenever we interviewed cancer patients, there tends to be a bit of a chain reaction. And for one, it can it can have some negative effects. It can make the person feel like they're incompetent, like they're being treated as if they can't handle their own issues. Um, it can actually become a burden to the person receiving support because they feel obligated to maybe pitch in and, and help towards whatever the person is doing for them. Or they, they just feel overwhelmed by having to respond to all these uh, messages that they receive all at once. Mm. And that can, be, that can be really stressful, especially if they're the type of people who are, um, I would call them box closers. They don't like to, you know, uh, to leave people hanging on Facebook chat or in text messages. They feel like they have to mm. respond to every message they receive. I'm that guy. Yeah, I am too. And and whenever you go through a, a difficult situation, it can be overwhelming because I think the timing of support gets kind of thrown off from your entire network. So imagine uh, that, you know, someone posts on Facebook or social media that they've been diagnosed with cancer and they get 150 messages. You know, let's say they're really well connected. They get 150 messages from friends, old colleagues, family members, distant relatives. And now they feel like they have to respond to all these messages. Mm. But what's really kind of um, unfortunate is that, you know, two weeks later, that they're not really receiving this huge outpouring of support. It seems to happen like a tsunami all at once. And then it's gone. And it's not gone completely. But, you know, a lot of people, they think, I don't really know this person that well. I'll just say one thing and, and I've kind of done my due diligence or I've done my part. Um, and of course, there's the people who are there for them along the way. But they sometimes just get overwhelmed at first. They get too much uh, to the point where they feel like they are burdened trying to respond to everybody's offers and in, in kindness. So what I tell people oftentimes is if they know someone going through a divorce or they've lost their job or um, or cancer or some other illness, you know, I tell them if you really haven't connected with this person in like a year or two, maybe wait like two weeks 
because your message might stand out more and might be more meaningful because it'll come at a time after that initial wave of support has maybe subsided. Mm, interesting. Yeah. You know, I think about the messages of, of support that I recently received due to the untimely passing of my dog. And, yeah. um, and yeah, it was a lot, it was a lot all at once, a lot of texts. I got phone calls, I got messages, I got, you know, you know, likes and emojis and all that stuff. And, you know, it's been about two weeks and yeah, there's been a couple of people, like you said, who sure. you know, who check Hey, how's it going? How are you holding up? That sort of thing. But it's very interesting the way that, uh, you know, I'm stuck on that term box checking. It's almost yeah. like the folks who see somebody suffering from something feel obligated to check that box. And then once it's checked, the person who's receiving the, the support feels obligated to um, recheck it. Okay. I acknowledge right. that you've been supportive. And that can get old fast, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's great if you hit, if you hear it from maybe five or ten people, but if you get like 40, 50, 100 mm -hmm. of those messages, it can be overwhelming. Tell me about it. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. So we need to be careful about the supportive messages that we pick because the last thing that we want to do is deliver a message that we want to be supportive. And in reality, it ends up overwhelming the person and, and, and putting them in a worse spot uh, than, than they meant to be. Wow. Um, I'm drawn, well, I'm drawn to two things. The first thing that I'm drawn to is actually the show, My 600 Pound Life. I don't know if you partake. Uh, okay. I've seen it one time. I watched that show frantically. Um, we, <laughs> the messages that are delivered there are very similar to that. And we see a lot of enabling and we see a lot of coddling. and We see a lot of nurturing and caretaking on that show. So that's where I'm drawn. But I'm also drawn to uh, something that we talked about, again, way earlier on this show when we had Dr. Floyd um, who taught both of us statistics. <laughs> That's right. We were yeah. in that together. We were in that class together. Um, and uh, in the episode that he uh, graced us with his presence, we talked a little bit about toxic masculinity, which just as a reminder is not the idea that masculinity itself is toxic, but rather that society can create a situation in which the most toxic qualities of masculinity are glorified, which is something that we want to push away from. We don't want those negative qualities. Uh, that said, um, there is still a very real trend for men, especially young adult men, to engage in health risk behaviors as a sign of masculinity or to not engage in certain more feminine behaviors like delivering uh, nurturing messages or messages of social support um, to, to the end of appearing more masculine or more tough. So my question is, how can males, specifically young adult males who are feeling threatened uh, in their masculine endeavors, how can they provide support without uh, feeling threatened, for lack of a better term? What are some ways? It's an interesting question. Uh, I am thinking through some of the more um, some of the social support research from psychology more so than communication is what comes mm -hmm. to mind right away. And specifically, this idea of what's called invisible support. So invisible support is a uh, shout out to Niall Bolger, the, uh, the researcher who, who coined this term. Mm. Um, the idea of invisible support is that we can do things for the other person in a way in which they do not notice, but it can still help them. And so things like, you know, if you, ha if you see that you have, um, 
your your partner's always stressed about an exam or um, or a meeting or a presentation they have to give, you know, making them a cup of tea uh, and just dropping it off at their desk for them or taking care of some of the household chores that they typically would take care of and not like bringing any attention to yourself and that you're doing these things, but just doing them. And what's really been interesting is uh, some of the research on invisible support has shown that it's actually just as effective or maybe even more effective than some of the more overt uh, actions that we do or things that we say to support one another. So sometimes just kind of being in the background and doing little things for another person that may or may not even get noticed actually has an effect, a positive effect on the other person and your relationship with them. So if someone's really feeling this kind of pressure of not coming across as your typical masculine man, uh, this might be a way they can still support someone without feeling threatened. But the other thing I want to throw out there is a lot of times it might, you know, I would encourage those who are feeling that way to maybe just start one conversation and just say, hey, you know, if you ever want to talk about something, like, I'm here for you. Because there might be this facade that both you as a supporter and the other person as a person in need are both putting up. And they're just both people are kind of waiting for one or the other to to break through that. Mm. And so if you're if you feel comfortable doing that and just saying something is making that offer of, hey, I'm here if you ever want to talk about these things, you might find that the other person opens up to you. And, you know, if you're comfortable doing that, I would suggest I would suggest trying it. And a lot of times it's not even about what you say. It's the idea of that you are someone um, who is present and, and willing to listen and let that person vent and, and get things off their off their chest. And some of the work I do with uh, this nonprofit founder, um, Kelsey Crow, uh, who's in charge of or who leads a nonprofit called Empathy Bootcamp, uh, works on these issues of how do we be there for another person? And, you know, is it we have to say the right thing? Or is there just enough to be present with the other person and to ask basic questions like, how are you doing today? And seeing how they respond. Mm. Interesting. So uh, I believe it was the uh, the great scholar Kanye West who said that my presence <laughs> is a present. Um, and so, <laughs> no, but really, I, I do think that that's uh, worth considering. Just the idea of you know knowing that somebody is there is sometimes perhaps even more helpful than like we were talking about earlier. This overflow of messages that ultimately are counterproductive. Um, we have just a couple of minutes left, and in that time, I kind of want to deliver a prelude for our next episode. We're going to be talking a lot about platonic relationships, which is something that we've avoided a lot on this show. <laughs> and so um, my question you know, in, in these last couple of minutes is, when we think about platonic relationships, can they deliver any specific kinds of support that we might not receive from something like a partner or a family member? And I know I'm putting you on the spot here. This was not on our notes. <laughs> Uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, one thing that one thing that, I, that comes to mind right away is let's say you are having an issue with your romantic partner and it's a topic that maybe you wouldn't want to talk to your parents about uh, or family members about. That's another reason or another uh, time whenever friendship in particular might be um, really important. And 
and there, I think I'm glad to hear that you're going to venture more into platonic relationships and, and studying or talking with folks maybe about friendships, because I think that's an understudied area of, of what we do. Mm. And there are some really unique benefits to, uh, from friendship. And I think part of it is that they are um, entered into without obligation. I'm, you know, I'm not born into my friendships like I am born into my family. And so some of the most meaningful relationships in my life are, are my closest friends, because we we share interests and we do things together, but we are we are entered into that just free of any obligation to maintain it, yet we still do, and we still maintain that really deep connection. And just to, one last thought here is that there's been plenty of research over the years that shows the number of close friends that you have has a really um, outsized effect on your physical and mental health. And that's important given right now, something like 25% of the U.S. adult population says they have zero close friends that they could turn to. Um, so it's some really shocking statistics on, on that. But um, maybe you and future guests can dive into that further. Yeah, wow, that is a crazy number. One in four people say that they have no close friends. Uh, you know, last week when we were talking with Dr. Kate Fiore, we, we did touch on a little bit of that when we study the social network. We are often referring to friends uh, as opposed to family members or as opposed to our partners. Um, but I am no expert on platonic relationships. I would say I am an expert on, you know, close, intimate relationships, which of course platonic relationships can be. Um, but I'm really excited to have our next guest on uh, to, to unpack some of those uh, more delicate issues that, you know, I don't quite have the tongue for. Uh, at this time, but you know, we have just a few uh, moments left. So, you know, at this time, I'd like to thank our guest, uh, Dr. Ray. Uh, it's been a blast having you here. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed catching up and talking about all this. Yeah. Anytime, anytime. And you know, like we talked about off air, one of these days, we're going to have to do a round table episode where we, where we sort of get all of us from ASU together and we just kind of sit down. Maybe we even get Paul Mondro in there and, and have him raise his little conductor's baton. Um, <laughs> We'll see what happens. Uh, that is, uh, unfortunately, all the time we have for this episode. Next time, we're going to be talking about platonic relationships. I'm looking forward to it. You've been listening to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. If you'd like to be on the show or have questions for us, please send us an email to redrockrelationships at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just search Red Rock Relationships. Thank you again. And remember, it all begins with good communication. This has been a production from a podcast studio.